Okay. All right. Amen. All right. So we are doing eight step, the eight steps from death to life. Um, we started it last week and we talked about the introduction. And to me, this is, uh, when I first went to the Apostolic Leadership Institute, my very first year was 2009. And I sat in that first year class and Brother Readout taught the eight steps from death to life uh, for first year students. And basically it was two hours a day for the five days, so 10 hours total. And obviously you can't get through the entire lesson in that amount of time, but he was able to go through. And then towards the end, um, he jumped over and talked a little bit about the principle of dynamic success, which is lesson six. And so um, that was the last day or so. Um, but um, as I went to the Apostolic Leadership Institute, I noticed my very first year. Um, Brother Smith had been going. He was granted alumni status. As an alumni at the Apostolic Leadership Institute, you can go to any class that you want. You can pick your classes. Um, first year classes are one thing. Second year classes are another. Third year, fourth year. And so any class Brother Reed that was teaching, that's where Brother Smith went. And I would remember the first year class sitting there and Brother Readout was teaching. I heard Brother Smith in the background going, oh, wow, you know, making all these comments. So I, told, I asked him afterwards, I said, Brother Smith, I mean, you've already been through this. He goes, yeah, but I just keep hearing things I don't remember hearing before. And so um, that's what it's like um, every time I've been through it, you know, picking things up that maybe I missed or, you know, you didn't re really see before. And so I went to ALI, and I graduated uh, after my fourth year, and I went back as alumni. In my fifth year, I did that. I went to all the classes Brother Readout taught. I put, alumni gets to pick, so I chose, my, I made my schedule, Brother Readout, Brother Read went to his classes, and then I filled in when he wasn't teaching other classes that were available. So I did that for uh, years five, six, and seven at the ALI as alumni. And so I've been through the class at ALI four times with Brother Readout teaching. And, um, and I've listened to the audio multiple times, both the old version and the new version. And I've read the lesson, and I still keep getting stuff out of it. So um, it's something that's awesome that about God's Word. There's so much depth to God's Word. And so anyways... Um, this lesson is the first time I saw it, the first time I heard it, I'm like, I saw it. I was like, yeah, it's there. I can see it. It, it just made perfect sense to me. And it, I left that first year thinking, um, I have to change. Ministry has to change. The focus has to change to the priority. And once, if, if it changes to the priority, then, you know, it doesn't take away the essentiality of Acts 2.38, but it just puts the priority on faith, on the foundation, who Jesus is, that oneness message. So that's what we're going through right now. That's how Lesson 8 does start. 
and um, it's something that they didn't do at ALI. They don't really go over. I don't remember him talking much about the pri priority of the oneness. Well, he only had 10 hours, so. Um, but we're, that's where we're at, and we're going to go straight to Second Peter chapter 1. That's where we finished last week. And, um, but we're going to go through it, and we're just going to start at verse 1. And we're not going to get too far. We're only going to get through the first five verses or so. But we'll start with verse 1. And um, it says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So the writer here is Peter, and he's the one to whom the Lord Jesus Christ gave the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Do you guys remember that in Matthew 6? We read about it in 13 through 20 where he's asking, who do men say that I am? And then, you know, they were giving various an answers, and then finally he said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, blessed art thou, Simon our Jennifer, flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee. And so he was given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And that's the one who wrote this passage. The guy that has the keys to the kingdom of heaven, Peter. He identifies himself as a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So the Bible tells us that no man can serve two masters. Is that right? We see that in Matthew 6, 24. You can't serve two masters. And he calls himself a servant of who? Oh. So does that mean he's only loyal to one of those three that are up in heaven? Because you can't serve two masters. He said he is a servant of Jesus Christ. So he's disavowing all loyalty to any other God but Jesus Christ. If God were a trinity, he's not a trinity. Nowhere in scripture do you see the word. It's a man-made doctrine. Majority of churches in this town believe in that doctrine. It is nowhere in scripture. It was created um, by uh, a council. And there was a lot of debate and argument back in those days. But there is no trinity in Scripture. Peter did not serve two of the other persons because he was a servant of Jesus Christ, if there was a trinity. The word servant is the Greek word doulos. It means a slave, bondman, man of servile condition. Um, metaphorically, one who gives himself up to another's will. Those whose service is used by Christ in extending and advancing his cause among men. Devoted to another to disregard of one's own interests. A servant attendant. And it says, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us. So Peter is writing to saved people. To them that have obtained like precious faith with us. He wrote to those who had obtained the like precious faith. Notice the roots of the definition of faith. The word obtained. 
So faith is obtainable. It's not unavailable. It's not out of reach. But it can be obtained. And that word obtain means to obtain by lot, to accept what is given. The Greek verb translated to obtain is passive. Now, I don't know if you guys know this, but in Greek, there are three voices. There is the passive voice, the active voice, and the middle voice. The active voice is the subject doing the action. So if you see a verb, um, Blas is scratching his eye. Eyelid, you know, verb, right? Uh, subject doing the action. Um, passive is when the action's being done to you, right? So Bloss's eye is being scratched. <laughs> so that's the passive. Obtain here is passive. That means what? It means not us doing the action. Right? The action's being done to us. We think of it as completely different, right? We think of obtain as like we go and obtain something. That's us action, doing something. We think of it more like the word receive, right? Um, well, receive is actually, it, they're, they're two opposite words. Receive is, uh, in the scripture, it's active. It's something that you have to go do, right? It's you doing the action, receiving. Obtaining is you receiving the action. It's, it's passive, right? I don't know the best way. I, I, I wrote down, I, I copied a definition here. In the active voice, the subject performs the action of the verb, while in passive voice, the subject receives the action. So, um, and there's some examples here. I copied this out of um, a dictionary. So, to obtain requires only your acceptance of what is given, but to receive requires more active effort on your part. So, when Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Ghost, we would think, I'm just going to sit. We think of it in the passive, right? But it's not. It's active. It's the active verb. And we don't, we don't always see that unless we study the tenses of the verb. So this word like, this faith is like precious faith, right? This faith is the same as Peter's. It's equal to Peter's. It would have to be for nothing else would be faith. For there is one faith according to Ephesians chapter 4 verse 5. <laughs> Good job, Jonathan. Jonathan. So, this word like does not mean similar. Okay, so here's some questions for you. Uh, true or false? One, Kylie, smiley, true or false, one equals one. These are hard questions. True, that's right. All right. Um, Christy, you'll know the answer to this one. 
K. Risty. True or false? Or I should ask Crispy. Crispy. One apple equals one apple. True or false? That's false. Did you guys know that is false? Because when you go to look at apples, you see people going like this, looking for the right one, because one apple does not equal one apple, right? (laughs) Some of them might uh, have a little extra with them, like a worm or something. (laughs) Or a rotten spot. (laughs) Or different sizes, right? One is indeed equal to one, but one of something is not equal to one of something unless it is the same one of that thing. So precious, the word precious, like precious faith, of value, importance, honor. So there are three requirements for something to be precious. Number one, scarcity. It's got to be rare. It's got to be not common. Uh, That's precious. Number two, necessity. It must be an essential or at the least extremely desirable. That's precious. Uh, Number three, uh, value. It's necessity. It's desirability must be recognized. So it's like precious faith. So how many people here, let me ask Caleb. Do you know that oxygen is necessary? (laughs) Oxygen is necessary, but it does not become precious to us until something happens to cut off our abundant supply. When it is scarce, we recognize our need of it and it becomes precious to us. So true faith is both rare and essential. And the church to whom Peter wrote knew that it was necessary. Faith is necessary. It is essential. Right, Rochelle? Her middle name is Faith. That's, that's what we, we call her sometimes. So, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So, it goes on to say, through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, this like precious faith was dealt to us through the pure and holy life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Had the Lord not lived a perfect human life in true righteousness, faith would not have been available for humankind to obtain. So Jesus Christ, it's through him. Faith is only available to us because Jesus Christ lived righteously before men. So his righteous life enabled us to know God, Jesus' righteous life. So notice the identity that Peter assigned to Jesus, God and our Savior. Many translations of the New Testament give us this reading, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So at the very opening of his epistle, Peter identifies the deity 
and the humanity of Jesus Christ. He's both God and he's human. Thus, Jesus Christ is defined as both God and Savior. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We all need grace and peace multiplied. So the vehicle through which they are multiplied unto us is through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's how grace and peace is multiplied unto us. Some would like to teach of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord proves a plurality of persons. But this is disproved in the remainder of the epistle. So the rest of this epistle defines, I'm talking about Second Peter, the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as being the knowledge of him, not them in Second Peter 1 verse 3. The knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ in Second Peter 1 verse 8. The knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Second Peter chapter 2 verse 20. And the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Second Peter 3 verse 18. Not of them, not a plurality of persons, but the knowledge of the humanity and deity of Jesus Christ. So it is obvious that Peter is referring to the knowledge of a hymn. The knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord is another reference to the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. So it is specifically the oneness of his deity and humanity that is the subject of the knowledge. The earliest Greek texts had no punctuation as we know it today. So many times the punctuation is arbitrary depending on translator bias. So they might put that comma wherever they, you know, according to their bias. So beside punctuation, the Greek conjunction chi, you guys have heard this before, the word that's translated as the word and. Sometimes it's translated as the word even. So it can be and, it could be even. And so um, imagine it being of God, even of Jesus our Lord. Under any circumstance, it is the knowledge of the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ through which grace and peace are multiplied unto us. Second Peter 1.3 says, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. So notice here that of God and of Jesus our Lord speaks of only one person. It is his, not their divine power. So according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain. See that word his? What's the antecedent for the word his? It's, you see it in the previous verse. So that's... Um, God and of Jesus Christ our Lord is a singular person, a his, a him. Notice also that Peter's telling us why it is through the knowledge of the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ that grace and peace are multiplied unto us. It says, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him. 
not only grace and peace, but all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things, not just grace and peace, are given unto us through the knowledge of the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. So, if somebody doesn't have the knowledge through which these things are given, what does he have that pertains to life and godliness? So all things that pertain to life and godliness are through the knowledge of him. And if somebody doesn't have that knowledge of him, what do they have that pertains to life and godliness? Is there some way to get those things other than the way that God's divine power has given them unto us? Is there a way to get those things other than how God has specified in his word? Can men circumvent God's way to obtain his gifts? Can they do it? If we could, we might be thieves and robbers. I'm reading a book right now that is so um, convicting. It deals with prophecy. And it deals with a lot of false prophets. And uh, there's uh, a lot of false prophets in the Old Testament. And sometimes the true prophets weren't so popular. Because what they had to prophesy wasn't always feel good. And in fact, sometimes, uh, you know, who, who were we talking? Who was I talking to uh, about this here recently? But in, um, was it you, Sister Katrina? Uh, King Ahab and Jehoshaphat, was it you, Sister Christy? Uh, they brought all these prophets and they said, yeah, go. Everything's going to be good. But then came the one, they said, uh, Jehoshaphat said, Isn't, is there any more prophets of the Lord here? <laughs> and, uh, you know, they were prophesying, oh, good, you, you're going to be prosperous. Everything's going to go great. You guys going to win this. And Jehoshaphat's like, yeah, is there, you had a prophet of the Lord here? He said, yeah, but this guy never speaks good concerning me. Micaiah. So he said, let's hear what he has to say. And Micaiah, you know, um, he wasn't so popular. And sometimes uh, being a prophet in the Old Testament wasn't a popular thing. It was a prophet who confronted David for his sin. Thankfully, David had a good response because a lot of prophets were killed because they didn't always speak things that were like, oh, things are going to be wonderful for you. I see a great future ahead for you. And I see a long life and 10 children and... Uh, uh, I'm looking at Caleb and <laughs> he's like <laughs> long life and 10 children and a hundred grandchildren. <laughs> All right. So would grace and peace be multiplied unto somebody if they lack the knowledge through which they are multiplied. Because we read that grace and peace is multiplied unto you through the knowledge of him. People say, what's the big deal? You know, we really don't need to know him. That comes later on. Well, if grace and peace is multiplied unto you through that knowledge, is that an essential thing? So 
Um, we do not decide who goes to hell. That's the prerogative of the judge. But we must determine the limits of his judgment as he has given them to us in his word, the very word of God. Someone is lost. The Bible tells us that people are lost. It says, if, Second Corinthians 4, 3 says, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. So there are people that are lost. There's people that will be lost. Not everyone is saved. So we have scriptures that tell us that. In 2 Peter 1 verse 4 says, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The word whereby... Or by where? Some Trinitarian scholars teach that the whereby refers to glory and virtue. Claiming that its form requires more than one antecedent object. The grammar might be correct, but the conclusion is not. Here's the reasons why. Number one, there's no scriptural validation for the idea that glory and virtue are the method for imparting the promises. The idea contradicts and makes nonsense to the scriptures. Number two, the text already established that the knowledge of him, the knowledge of Jesus Christ, is the vehicle through which all things that pertain to life and godliness are given unto us. So is glory and virtue something that pertains to life and godliness? And all such things surely includes the exceeding great and precious promises that we must call upon to escape corruption and become partakers of the divine nature. So it would be a contradiction to now say the promises are given through a different vehicle. The knowledge of him contains the dual objects required by the grammar of the Greek. The knowledge of him has been defined as containing two elements, the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. God became a man. That man that he became is called the Son. The absolute God. 23 chromosomes that was fully God. Joined together with the seed of Mary. And in every cell of Jesus' body. Was 23 chromosomes that were human from Mary and 23 that were God, what God became, every cell of Jesus's body. It wasn't just God who put on a coat, but it was God becoming a man. He is both deity and humanity. It's through our great oneness knowledge that the promises are given. So does someone who lacks this knowledge really have these promises? What great and precious promises are given to him apart from this knowledge? How does he get them? So do you see how it's talking about the knowledge of him in these first few verses? The importance of the knowledge of him, everything that pertains to life and godliness comes through that knowledge. Grace and peace is multiplied unto us through that knowledge, uh, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. You see all these things through the knowledge of him. So, um, 
It is by them, these exceeding great and precious promises, that we have our hope. For only by calling upon the exceeding great and precious promises of God can we escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. We can become partakers of the divine nature only if we first escape that corruption. How essential are those promises? How essential is the knowledge of the deity and humanity of our Lord through which the promises are given? So proper usage of the terms deity and divinity is important. There are those who would obscure the truth and the issue by admitting the divinity of Jesus Christ rather than his deity. Deity refers to Godhead and can be applied to only one. That's it. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, according to Colossians chapter 2. So the church will be partakers of the divine nature, but will never be deity. So we'll be partakers. Jesus Christ is the deity. His humanity is divine. He is not divided. Only one conclusion is possible. The knowledge of the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ is the very prime essential. It's the first essential. It's the most important thing. It is through that knowledge that everything that pertains to life and godliness comes. He wants us to know him. He desires us to know him. We should seek him. Seek the Lord. Seek his face. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This should be the very most important priority in our lives. No one can know the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ and consider him to be less than the only God. If you say that you know Jesus Christ and you don't realize that he is the one and only God who had been manifest, then you're not seeing him the way that the Bible has declared him to be. There are many gods conceived in the minds of men, but the true God has revealed himself as being alone, all by himself, no other God. Isaiah 37, 16 says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwellest between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. Also, Isaiah 44, verse 24 says, Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. Who is the creator? Who was the creator? Just one. He did it all by himself. And we read in John chapter 1, and we realize that Jesus Christ himself was the creator. It says, without him was not anything made that was made. So he claims to be the beginning. He's the arche. So what else? Isaiah 45, 21 says, Tell ye and bring them near, yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? 
Have not I the Lord, and there's no God else beside me? So if you know of another God beside God, you know something God does not know. There is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. And Isaiah 46, 9 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. So this oneness must be an essential truth, for it is the truth expressing the knowledge of Him. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. So we see everything that's talked about in these first four verses, right? The knowledge of Him. We get all these things through knowing Him. And it says, verse 5, and beside this, what's this? That, beside what? Beside everything we've been j- just now talking about. Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. This is the key to defining faith. The word this refers to the one main subject of the preceding verses. The knowledge of the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. And beside this, we are to add to this. This is faith. We are told to go beyond our knowledge of him, beyond our faith, and add to our faith. The Greek word translated here as faith is used in three primary contexts in the scripture. Number one, faith as a cognitive and objective commodity. It's the intellectual comprehension of the truth of the oneness of the Godhead in Jesus Christ. That's faith. People say, I guess I just need more faith. That's not the definition of faith, what you're, the way that many people use the word faith. People say, I'm of a different faith than you. No, the Bible says there's only one faith. There's not multiple faiths. There's not even two faiths. There's not three faiths. There's different belief systems, but there's only one faith. And faith is your knowledge of who he is. And there's a lot of people that think they know who he is and they define him completely differently than the word of God defines him. So faith as a volitional, and number two, as a volitional and subjective response resulting from that comprehension. So this is the link between the noun faith and the verb to believe. Faith in this second context is primarily concerned with intellectual responses. The verb to believe as we saw in James chapter 2, 21 through 23 last week, we defined it as faith plus works, is primarily concerned with the outward actions that result from faith. So number three, the faith as opposed to faith as the body of truth that's revealed to the church. We talked about they departed from the faith. This is the context used most seldom of the three. So the definition of faith that follows is intended to encompass all three uses. And here is the definition. Are you guys ready for the definition? All that to get to this definition. Faith is our personal, intimate knowledge of the person. Person is the deity and humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Identity 
including his name, and plan of God that enables us to discern what he intends to do so that we can act in harmony with him. That's faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. We walk because we know who he is. We have an understanding of who he is. We have an understanding of what his plan is. We may not understand what's going to happen, but we walk that way. We walk by faith, not by sight. Faith active is acting in harmony with what we have discerned God intends to do. Faith inactive is dead, being alone. The faith is body of truth given to the church through the revelation of the person, identity, and plan of God. So faith is knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm almost done. I'm trying to hurry to finish this in time. I told you guys I was only trying to cover five pages a week, and that would put us in just over a year to finish the lesson. So this is only five pages. Just trying really hard to finish five pages. So faith is knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ, the man who died, was buried and rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, knowing that He is the one and only Lord God Almighty and our Savior, knowing this will open our awareness to his plans so we can cooperate with him. So we are able to cooperate with him. So we have the permission to cooperate with him. Believing God is knowing him plus obeying him. That's believing God. Believing God will result in his imputing righteousness unto us so we can escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. As we escape the corruption that is in the world through lust, we become partakers of his divine nature and we are conformed to the image of the Son. That's the ultimate goal. So Hebrews chapter 11 confirms. So Hebrews chapter 11, people say, what's the definition of faith? Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And they focus on the word hoped for and not seen. So this is what I want. I want a Lamborghini. So if I hope real hard for it, I haven't seen it. (laughs) That is not faith. That is not faith. Faith is the substance, and it's the evidence. So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, gives us more of a description rather than a definition. So a lot of people, that's what they say. I guess I just didn't have enough faith because it didn't happen. So they're trying to hope for something that's not seen, hope for anything that they want, not according to his plan or according to who he is, the knowledge of him. Faith has everything to do with the knowledge of who he is, his person, identity, his plan. So us understanding that, then we act in accordance with that. That's what faith is. Um, Somebody said, well, I I wasn't healed of cancer. I guess I didn't have enough faith. That's not right. Because, you know, having his idea of what the plan is and you acting in accordance with that. So that's what Hebrews chapter 11, that's the one thing that all the heroes of faith had in common is they had an understanding of who God was, his person and identity and his plan, what the plan, and they act in accordance with that. So not all men have faith. 
I grew up being taught that everyone, everybody, no matter who, they, they're given a measure of faith. And so everyone's got it. So some people's got a little bit less faith than some people a little bit more. That's what I, that's what I was taught. But we know that not all men have faith. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2 says, And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. Idolaters, those who worship false gods, are children in whom is no faith. According to Deuteronomy 32, verse 20, where it says, And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see that their end shall be what their end shall be, for they are a very froward generation, children in whom is no faith. Romans 12.3. This is where we get that teaching of people say, uh, God has given to every man a measure of faith. That's not what the verse says, but let's read it. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you. Okay, so he's writing to the church at Rome. He says, to every man among you, so all you, your brethren and your sistren, all, every man among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. It is addressing not only men in the church relative to their importance, but to everyone in the church, faith has been given. But even this is not the fullest sense of this passage. God has given every man the measure of faith. That's the rule. Measure. Tape measure. It's the rule. It's the standard. Here's the measure of faith. This is what faith is. And everyone gets the measure of faith. It has to do with a measure, right? A measurement. Um. It's, it's the rule by which every man can measure his knowledge of God, faith, and determine his true stature before God. Every man is given the measure of faith. 2 Corinthians 10, 13, But we will not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach unto you. So God's given to every man the measure of faith, the rule by which every man can measure his knowledge of God and determine his true stature before God. This concept is verified in Romans 16, 25 through 27, and this is where we're going to stop. And then um, we will start with this next week, this passage, Romans 16, 25 through 27. This is just a little where we'll end and we'll, where we'll begin next week. Now to him that is a power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. To God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Praise the Lord. So we'll stop right there. It's a good stopping place, and it's 732. It's amazing. It's able to be just a little couple minutes late, then later than normal. All right.
Let's see. I think I'll have my daughter Rochelle pray in closing since she's not normally here on Wednesday nights. She's normally at Bible college, but she has this week off due to, you know, their spring break. Okay. Amen. You guys are dismissed in Jesus' name.